Hello, listeners of The Memo. The following is an episode of Oak Tree's new podcast, The Insight by Oak Tree Capital. In this new podcast, we present insights from experts across Oak Tree. If you're interested in this type of content, please subscribe to The Insight by Oak Tree Capital wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anna Shemansky, Oak Tree's senior financial writer, and today's episode is going to be focused on all things European credit, from liquid to private. So for this discussion, I'm thrilled to be joined by Armin Panosian, Oak Tree's head of performing credit, Madeline Jones, portfolio manager of Oak Tree's European high yield bond and senior loan strategies, and Niall Katoon, head of European private debt. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. To get started, I just kind of want to set the stage. What are some of the main ways to raise debt financing in European markets today? And how might they vary from what we see in the U.S.? Sure. I'd like to jump in on that and then Madeline and Niall could add. But in terms of corporate borrowers, there are a variety of different ways to borrow. Obviously, the banks are at times quite active in Europe. But coming out of the global financial crisis, banks in Europe and to some extent in the U.S. became quite conservative with the leverage that they were allowed to take on by regulators and by their risk managers. Away from the banks, the syndicated loan market is really an institutional asset class. Mm -hmm. CLOs or collateralized loan obligations managed by investment managers like us are the most active and prominent owner of syndicated loans. A lot of larger borrowers and private equity owned businesses tap that market to finance their acquisitions. And then finally, there's high yield bonds as well as investment grade bonds. And in the case of high yield bonds, it is also a very institutional asset class. There is really not a huge retail investor base in Europe. And then finally, I think away from the publicly traded markets, there's private credit, which Niall and team are very focused on. Generally speaking, there is a very active private credit manager universe in Europe. Every one of them has a different style. But the vehicles that those managers employ to raise capital from investors and then lend in the market are generally an an institutional asset class. Again, there really aren't retail vehicles like you would see in the U.S. Mm -hmm. For example, in private credit in the U.S., business development corporations or BDCs are a heavily used retail vehicle that are distributed in U.S. as well as outside of the U.S. But I would say Europe in particular is not an appropriate regulatory framework for BDCs to be sold. And therefore, the retail investor base or the potential retail investor base in Europe, specifically in private credit, is really untapped at the moment. And look, I think it's fascinating to see how the market has evolved over the last decade. Ten years ago, Europe was dominated by banks. It was 80% bank-led, 20% other. Today, it's 180 degrees the other direction. And private credit has really filled that gap in a big, big way. Now let's dive into today's credit market. So Madeline, I'll start with you. On the liquid side, what are some of the main trends that have been driving activity over the last year? This has been probably a year of recovery from a terrible event-driven year last year. We had Ukraine, of course, the invasion there. And then we had the LDI issue at the back end of the year. So coming into this year, quite an interesting spread pickup. US versus Europe, very attractive, very compelling. But um, quite quickly, the market gaining confidence and realizing that it can lend and it can find a risk spectrum it is happy with. And we've seen that kind of confidence continue to grow over the course of the year. A lot of this year has been light 
new primary issuance. A lot of it has been refinancing based. But what we found is if you're a good quality company, there is a receptive capital market for you. It may not be the spread or the yields right. that you <laughs> might have wanted or seen a few years back. For us as lenders, it's fantastic. But for companies, it may present a different kind of yield context or coupon they have to pay. But if you find the right company, good quality companies, get the right yield on them, get the right structure, get good investor protection, it's a receptive market. And I would say at the tail end of last year, you know, consistent with Madeline's point, there was the ultimate degree of pessimism about all things in Europe, that mm -hmm. the war was going to spiral out of control, that the energy crisis was going to become quite acute in Europe and access to energy and heat was going to be a problem. And so spreads in the European market were worse than the U.S. or wider than the U.S. Right. And I think it really incorporated all the worst case scenario for all things Europe at that time. But I think coming out of it and the winter wasn't quite as cold as people expected right. and the energy situation wasn't quite as bad. The ability of the Ukraine military to defend itself was proven time and again. And I think that there's this growing perception that we don't need to assume the worst case in all things in Europe. And so we did see a spread tightening event in European high yield bonds and senior loans that was on top of or even outpaced the US market at times for most of this year so far, because it was wider and more pessimistic. And now it's, I would say, on par. And there is a belief that, again, to Madeline's point, in terms of the high quality part of the European market, that the high quality part of high yield bonds and senior loans are actually higher quality than the US in that they're less levered, very non-cyclical businesses. There's a lot to like and a lot to buy in Europe. Well, look, in private credit, I think we've seen much of the same themes. This idea about flight to quality, I think is central. You know, last year, you were averaging a thousand transactions a year in private credit. At this point, you're probably 30, 40% down on volumes, maybe even more. And so you have seen this flight to quality, but you've also seen the defensive positioning has become a really, really strong theme. So in a bizarre way, those industries that have traditionally been resilient, so take healthcare, business services, software, you've seen actually even more competition for those right. particular deals than you have done ever before, even though the volumes are significantly down. Now, I know a lot of the trends that we've seen in both European and US markets have been driven by macro forces in the last few years. But obviously at Oak Tree, we're bottom-up fundamental investors. And I'm curious what the fundamental work that you've been doing, the conversations you've been having with companies, how that's informed your insights about some of these macro themes. And also, have there been any instances where what you've seen on the ground has differed from what you've seen in broad indicators? Yeah, I mean, I can have a go at that. We're privileged in that we look at hundreds of different companies. So we are getting reads on industries and granular feedback on what is really happening out there. And for the most part, I would say in traditional concerns about recessions, you start to worry about the consumer and unemployment and the slowdown of spending. And this environment hasn't really shown that to date. The consumer has been really robust. That I would say is a difference with the, what you read in the press sometimes about concerns on the consumer. You just haven't seen it yet. They're sitting on quite a lot of cash still. But we all fear that will come. And maybe we're starting to see a little bit of it around the edges of consumer pulling back, even around leisure now, a little bit pullback, a little bit of down trading and food. But what I think is more dramatic is the intermediary companies who are destocking 
ahead of that. Mm. So they're getting quite conservative, getting quite defensive and just not keeping as much inventory, really right-sizing their cost bases and retrenching. So you've seen the impact of that on places like cyclical chemical companies, very significant volume reductions on their top line because their customers are just becoming quite cautious. So although it's not the traditional consumer-led recession, you're seeing something happening around the cyclical end of the market, also in residential building construction, building construction material suppliers, they've seen a lot of retrenchment as well. So you're seeing pockets where there is clearly recessions within industries. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're paying very close attention to. But this may be just a question of timing, because if you think about historic periods of time where rates suddenly rose, you really didn't see a recession or recessionary pressures until 12 or 18 months thereafter, until Mm -hmm. after the peak rate was hit. And we are not uh, 12 or 18 months since the peak rate has been hit, you know, in, in global markets. And so in the short term indicators, especially those that are backward looking, how did a company perform last quarter or the quarter before or the quarter before? It's not necessarily indicative of how it will perform in three quarters or two quarters. So as a result, when we look at those fundamental performance indicators of businesses, they look shockingly resilient. The consumer is shockingly strong. Companies are able to pass through some level of cost increases from inflation. At this point, inflation is heading in the right direction. However, I think the question becomes, at least for Oak Tree, even though we're not macro forecasters, we do need to think about where we are in terms of likelihood of a recession and what Mm -hmm. could cause that to tip over. From my perspective, it is fairly clear that we've had 10, 15 years of easy money. And as you suddenly turn that off and access to capital dries up and the cost of that capital rises, it's natural to think that cracks will develop. And in the short run, we're going to see minor cracks or maybe no cracks at all. And that's kind of a head fake. But if you think about the market, the economy, access to capital in a few quarters from now, in a higher rate environment, and you say, okay, well, what's going to happen between now and then? Between now and then, looks like GDP is fine. It looks fairly positive. Maybe it's not quite strong in terms of economic growth, but at least it's positive. And if inflation is under control or becoming under control, well, then central banks don't really have a reason to either raise rates or to let them decline. And that second part is a critical piece to predicting dislocation. Because if a bunch of the market and capital structures were put in place at a time of easy money and therefore very debt heavy, and this is a global statement rather than a Europe-centric statement, but If that capital structure in light of today's rate environment looks top heavy in terms of debt, well, give it another two or three quarters and higher cost of borrowing, you will have a default and loss experience with or without a recession occurring. And that's really just because of rates and it's because of rate sensitive asset classes having inflated so much over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I mean, companies that put on debt two or three years ago, they were half the cost of debt they are today. And they didn't predict that in their And they didn't hedge. Plan. And they didn't hedge. Yeah. And what's interesting is in the UK, certainly the biggest impact on the consumer by far is going to be when all these medium-term five-year fixed mortgages roll off and suddenly the consumer has to refinance onto a floating rate significantly higher. And we forget inflation and food prices. This is going to be the single biggest impact on discretionary spend. And it's still coming. As you talked about, Armin, this is coming in three, six, nine months, not today. Yeah, the UK is particularly challenged with that. Fixed rate 
mortgages, not long term, like the US has very long term exactly right. structures, ours are much shorter. So to be careful about the UK consumer and the pockets that they have. However, um, employment is still very, very tight. So there might not be a reason for central banks to continue to raise interest rates, but also if employment is still yes. pretty strong, also not a reason why take to lower it down. Them, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, if the unemployment picture is relatively stable, central banks look at that and say, well, it's okay to have a little bit of a recession or a little bit of a washout or some deflation of asset bubbles. That's natural. That's okay. And as long as we don't have systemic risk, as long as we don't have banks failing mm-hmm. and deposit risk, then having a natural, not a, a very deep recession is a completely acceptable outcome, I believe, for central banks in this next kind of two-year period. Yes, a clear out of some weak, over-levered parts of the market. We absolved the market of that issue after the global financial crisis by just drumming in a whole load of liquidity. Maybe now this is the time where they let some things fail. But now this higher for longer scenario that you're outlining, would you say that most people in the market are predicting that or people still thinking that, okay, rates are high, but they will trend back towards what we saw in the last 10, 15 years? I think there's a bit of hope, especially the company that sits on a heavily indebted balance sheet that maybe doesn't mature for a couple of years. Maybe they just want to play it out a bit to see whether rates come down, they can refinance it. But the reality is this might be as good as it gets for them and they probably shouldn't wait too long if the capital markets are receptive today. Hope is not a strategy, but when the short-term indicators are, oh, the world isn't so bad, then you stop thinking about the world in three or four quarters from now. And I think CFOs of these businesses that have a lot of leverage, if you were to ask them why they're awake in the middle of the night, it's because they didn't hedge two years ago It's because their cash balances are shrinking. They are being impacted in a negative way by inflation. They're not able to pass through all of those cost increases within a short enough period of time. And I think that some of them understand that their equity support may not be there for them in the scale and quantum that they need. They should expect, if they don't already, some challenges and need for capital and concessions from lenders. And I think we're just very early in that phase. I think there are rating agencies now that are downgrading highly levered credit at a faster rate than they're upgrading them. That should be a sign that at least some third parties are looking at that imbalance in the capital structures and making moves that would indicate some stress coming along the way. But for now, there's a little bit of euphoria because it looks like the economy is growing. Mm -hmm. Inflation is coming in the right direction. Corporate earnings are okay. Consumer is spending money. It feels to me a little bit like a head faker or the calm before the storm. The immaculate disinflation. Yes. (laughs) Madeline, you touched on this a little bit before. We're talking about overarching risk, but I'm interested more in sector-specific risk. I'm also curious if there are differences between these sectors that are areas of concern in liquid markets versus in private markets in Europe. Yeah, that's really interesting. Niall, you were talking about a couple of the sectors, healthcare, I think you mentioned uh, software. Software, business services. Yeah. Yeah. And these are the pockets of concern. The names within the existing, particularly the loan universe, where balance sheets were put on a few years back, because of that very same desire to lend, they got given a whole load of debt. Lenders were very happy to really lever up seven turns of leverage on a good quality healthcare name. 
hospital, company, care home, whatever it may be. And they got given good debt floating rate. And now they've got double that interest burden coming on. And for us, those are the areas, despite their good top line characteristics, because of that amount of leverage, they just look very vulnerable to us, to any operational issue that may happen. They've got rising labour costs, they've got labour shortages, how to pass that through and still service that increased debt costs. They look more vulnerable to us. And perversely, some of the areas where traditionally we don't like to lend to, some of the cyclical parts of the market, even the commodity chemicals parts of the market, they are used to being in cycles and they have levered themselves very, very conservatively. It's all about balance sheet today. Can you afford your debt? and will gravitate towards those just as you do a good quality consumer. You gravitate to provide your lending to someone who can afford it and afford it very healthily. But quite different, I think, from the new structures you're seeing. Yeah, and, and certainly I think my comment was with reference to new issuance as, as opposed to as you look at infrastructure deals, especially historically, they were levered sometimes in double digits. And, and so as they look to refinance, they're really struggling. But I think that there's a really interesting wider point around private versus public market valuations. And certainly as we look at refinancing a corporate, it's sometimes hard to get around that discrepancy between the two sides of the spectrum. Because on the one hand, we look at it and we struggle to see how the private marks really reflect today's valuations. And that's the challenge you have in that you know, private marks are set by GPs that have total discretion particularly when they go fundraising, as you can imagine. <laughs> and so they tend to be quite sticky. And so you struggle sometimes to get to any form of understanding or comfort with the numbers because the valuations just look out of whack. And one of the interesting data points to look at is the share price of publicly listed private equity funder funds. And what you'll see if you look at these share prices, over the last six months, we've seen really moderate movement in NAVs, but on average, they've all traded at a 30 to 40% discount to NAV, which basically tells you the public market thinks that these things are way overvalued. And that's part of the challenge we have when we go and have a private credit conversation, which is there's just that wide gap between expectations of value and what we think they truly are. I think that point about private equity is important in that private equity funds over the last 10 years were very accustomed to buying a company at a very healthy multiple. That multiple would generally go up over time because the cost of borrowing was stable or declining over time. And access to capital markets allowed them to do dividend recaps, return capital to their LPs. There was a liquidity that was quite attractive for LPs that were invested in private equity funds. But now, over the last two or three years, we've seen a decline in valuation multiples. And those businesses that were bought in 2018, 19, or even 2021 are now underwater from a valuation multiple standpoint. And that's why those stocks are trading at a discount to NAV. It's also created as a new market opportunity. And that market opportunity is created by the fact that LPs want capital back before they invest in new private instruments. And as a result of that, things like NAV finance to private equity sponsors, it has grown. The size of the transactions have grown. The frequency of the transactions have grown. The desire for LPs to have that type of financing at the fund level has opened. We're seeing a lot of those types of transactions now starting to develop both in Europe and the US because of the need for liquidity to return back to LPs. Similarly, there is a very well-known market in private equity secondaries, and we're seeing the emergence of a new credit or private credit secondaries activity where 
investors, institutional investors and private credit funds and private equity funds are now looking to trade their limited partnership interest to other institutional clients or managers. And again, it is because there's a certain cadence of return of capital that they were expecting. They had made commitments to new funds predicated on that cadence, and that is not playing through. So at the end of the day, there's both risk and opportunity in the markets. And it really depends on the vintage. If you look at the old vintage, the healthcare companies that were and continue to be quite stable performers, well, they were levered to the hilt. And now with elevated cost of borrowing, they're in trouble. New vintage in the same healthcare industries or sectors are more appropriately structured. The capital structures are put in place in contemplation of 11, 12, 13% cost of borrowing in the case of the private context. And therefore, the equity checks that we're seeing from private equity firms in these really attractive sectors are now north of 50%, whereas they used to be more like 40%. And routinely in tech, healthcare, we're seeing 60, 70% equity checks in these types of private equity deals. It's both risk and opportunity. Well, it's interesting, and I'd throw it out to the group for their thoughts, but there is a debate as to whether or not you would actually take on that higher cost of financing today just because the buying opportunities in the market are tremendous. I mean, would you argue potentially that the equity returns that you could potentially generate at today's valuations more than offset the dilution of higher borrowing costs? Funnily enough, we have this dilemma in CLOs, right? Because we are a CLO manager, we we like to accumulate portfolios of loans and then we find some debt financing to lever that up and we can potentially generate a healthy equity return. Today's market, the cost of that debt is high, but so are the primary loan yields we're getting. Some of the best primary you will see is after some very challenging events are revealed. You've seen that after the global financial crisis. You get excellent yields, you get better structured documentation. So this is a wonderful time to be harvesting that kind of quality of loan at those yields, but your debt cost on your CLO liabilities has gone up. But I think if you marry the two up, you can still generate a very, very compelling equity return because you have that underlying pool, which we don't often get. And you also have a market, a secondary market for loans, which is dislocated trading at below par levels for high quality. So you have a discounted price level, which you hardly ever get. So the marrying of the two, to your point, your opportunity set is much better than it was before. Yeah. I mean, a lot of investors say you make money on your buy. And with respect to private equity, that's true. If you're able to buy a company that used to trade at 15 times EBITDA, and now you could buy it at 12 times or 11 times, if you can convince yourself that in three, four, five years, the valuation multiples will revert to something between 12 or 15, mm -hmm. then you could make a lot of money through multiple expansion. And you're able to buy a business that's very high quality that just wasn't even available for sale in the last five or 10 years. So buying that business and yes, paying 60, 70% in equity to buy that business can make a lot of sense. Similar for CLO equity. I think a lot of equity investors and CLOs think about the arbitrage between the return on the assets of a CLO and the cost of the liabilities of the CLO. And they look at that and say, well, is that attractive or is that not attractive? But the reality is you make money on the buy in CLOs. If you could buy a portfolio of CLOs that's highly diversified, high quality, low default risk, and with a manager that has experience navigating through many, many cycles, well, then you are buying a portfolio at a discount and there is no substitute 
to buying CLO assets at a discount. And the reason is this, if you buy a portfolio at a five point discount and it recovers to par over time because these are good assets and they don't default, well, your liabilities, while they might be more expensive than you otherwise would have liked, at some point when the dislocation fades and it becomes a more normal market, you will be able to refinance your liabilities right. into much tighter spreads and much lower cost, but you will never be able to recreate that portfolio that you bought at 95 cents on the dollar. And with the leverage implied in CLO equity, that recovery to par has multiple impact on your equity. It's a very attractive time. And I know Madeline and I talk about this all the time, which is it is conversely to what popular opinion is about the way CLOs work and what makes them attractive, this is actually a far more interesting time mm -hmm. to invest in CLO equities than in balanced par markets. Because we did backtesting and we looked at the best performance of CLO equities was actually during those periods of market dislocation, not during the periods of par markets. We're thinking about opportunities, risks. In Europe, obviously, jurisdiction plays a big role. I'm curious now, give this to you. What do you think the differences are between jurisdictions in terms of opportunities, maybe risks? Very significant. And the reality is there isn't a single answer because it's constantly changing. And there's so many facets to it. I'll name a few. The first obviously is political. So take Brexit. How do you underwrite UK as it goes through Brexit? It's virtually impossible to underwrite the exit at that point. Some of it is as simple as macroeconomic. Germany was the powerhouse. Now it's going through a really, really tough period. And so any private credit investor looking to underwrite Germany at this point is going to ask for a bit of a premium to take on German risk. And some of it is just simply structural, historical issues in law or jurisdictions that have never changed. So take Italy, Italian legislation prohibits the issuance of non-amortizing term loan bees. And of course, that's much more high in demand today. But also, there's just a lack of banks that operate in the middle market. And that creates a vacuum for private credit and alternative lenders to come and fill the gap. So there isn't a single answer, unfortunately. It's one we monitor the whole time because we're trying to balance at any single moment where the best risk reward lies in Europe and try and pick and choose. Yeah, it's one of the wonderful things about European investing is there's always something going on. If not today, it will invariably come yeah. quite <laughs> soon because it's not a uniform landscape. The political environment is so different and the cadence of political events is so different. And with Europe, you can wait and be patient because there will be an event which will blow out the spreads and make it look compelling again. It's just, as you were saying, it's lots of different things which make it always worth looking at for an opportunity because there will invariably be one of mispriced risk. And talking about pan-European is easy in concept. The reality is to execute is very difficult in principle because this concept of Europe being a single jurisdiction in the sense that you have chapter 11 in the US just doesn't exist. Every single country is governed by its own lending laws. And unless you've had experience in what happens in a downside, what happens in a restructuring, you could find yourself caught out very easily. It's really quite a tricky field to operate and a minefield if you get it wrong. We've talked about a lot of specific risks, but I'm curious to get your sense of near-term default risk, both on the private and liquid side. Madeline, I'll start with you. Well, as was saying before, the market has got to a place of pretty much full recovery in terms of providing capital with confidence to good quality companies. Good quality companies who need to refinance their balance sheets that have a maturity impending this year, they have found a way to do that. Even good quality companies facing maturities next year, most of those are 
already done. So really the trigger for default, if it comes from a maturity driven event of default, is very limited this year and next year. There really isn't much that matures. It would have to be a company running out of cash. And given that we've seen a recovery and pretty healthy performance from companies. There aren't that many that fall in that category either. And what we found is the ones that do in the market are the ones that were already impaired prior to COVID, frankly. They've been long-running, operationally challenged businesses for Mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. You will see that cohort now not finding an easy way out because no one's bailing that kind of risk out anymore. But really substantial defaults, we don't see that. We see that you have to look out beyond to 25, maybe even as far as 26 before you see an uplift. And one of the things I think we have had the luxury of is that unlike other periods of downturn, we've come into a downturn having had a couple of nasty years. You know, you've had COVID, you've had in Europe, Ukraine. And that has meant companies weren't gangbusters, expansion, M&A, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't happening so much. They were a little bit more conservative, pushing out maturities, getting cash on balance sheet, not paying loads of dividends out, not doing the massive CapEx plan that they may have done in a different climate. But with that sort of fiscal conservatism behind them, gives them a bit more, at least bandwidth and time to come out with solutions if they have a debt load, which looks very toppy in the new interest rate environment. This quality comparison, I think, is a critical point between Europe and the U.S. I think in Europe, because of all the factors Madeline pointed out, the average quality of the senior loan or high yield bond market is just higher. The companies are less levered. They're more stable. They haven't overspent. There wasn't a hyperactive private equity community. However, in the U.S., the split of the market that is the lowest quality, but just above triple C, currently in the senior loan market is the highest it has been in about 13 years. It, that is because the U.S., unlike Europe, loves or loved credit, loved leverage, loved hyper-levered buyouts with very creative addbacks to EBITDA when they did lever up these companies. And none of those creative, highly adjusted EBITDAs have really worked out in the end. The likelihood of defaults because of cash flow drying up in the U.S. is far higher than that of Europe. I think what probably is more on par with one another would be actually the U.S. high-yield bond market in comparison to the European high-yield bond market or European senior loan market in that the latter three are actually less levered today and higher quality today than they have been for most of the last 12 or 13 years. Whereas I think uniquely to the U.S. senior loan market, as well as to some older vintage direct lending, the leverage profile of those companies was very, very aggressive. And when you combine that with an elevated cost of borrowing, their cash flow is drying up much, much faster. And the default experience is going to be more elevated in U.S. senior loans in particular, relative to European high-yield bonds or senior loans or U.S. high-yield. So I think what I hear you saying is that the risks that you were discussing earlier related to the unsustainable capital structures created during the easy money era that may run into trouble now that interest rates have increased so much, that while this is definitely an issue in all regions, it's probably more significant in the U.S. and specifically 
in the U.S. loan market and, and maybe less of a concern, at least right now, in Europe? Look, I think what Armin said about Europe having generally higher quality issuers in, in that respect, fewer restructurings is spot on. If you look back at the period post-GFC, you'll notice there was only 12, maybe 15 overall true distress for control deals in Europe. And that actually gave the banks confidence in a certain way, which is to say that doing nothing ended up being a phenomenal <laughs> result. Great strategy. A great strategy. And so today you see a lot more of the same, which is amend and extend and really no proactive decision making unless there's a liquidity need. But today that's the exception rather than the rule. As we end, one of the things I'm curious about is from your discussions with companies, the work that you do, are there any trends or risks that aren't being widely discussed that you think people should be more focused on? I'll jump in and start on the private credit side. Look, if you asked me this question 18 months ago, I'd say ESG and then ESG and then ESG again. <laughs> but, but I think now that's pretty much at the forefront of most corporates thinking. The one that isn't, but we see on every single deal, especially post the start of the war in Ukraine, is sanctions. And, and sanctions is an interesting one because uh, it never used to be part of a diligence process 10 years ago. Now it's in every single DD process and it cuts not just revenue, but of course the entire supply chain. And then you've got the whole sectoral and subsector diligence that you have to do as well. So to me, it's one that hasn't come to the fore in terms of people talking about, but it's at the center of every single DD process very early on as well in terms of go, no go decision. The list of my worries is really long <laughs> and constantly growing. I think the one that troubles me and I'm not sure how it resolves is this consistent labor shortage we have. And something happened in COVID where we just removed a part of the labor force permanently, seemingly not coming back and how companies deal with that. And again, going back to the risks of interest rates being higher for longer, I think that penny maybe hasn't dropped everywhere in companies that you really are stuck with that balance sheet and you don't have a free pass this time. And to Madeline's point, some portion of the labor force globally has just exited. Unclear as to how they're able to do that. But that, I think, is an interesting point. And whether that reverts or not, usually what you need is a recession for people to appreciate their jobs again. And that's something that could end up maybe changing that dynamic. But one, I think, big picture risk and opportunity that I think will become at the forefront of investor minds, CEO minds, is artificial intelligence and machine learning. But there will be winners and losers as a result of those that are at the forefront of using AI in their business processes. And there will be the opportunity for countries, for businesses to leapfrog others, because I don't think that anybody really has a monopoly on AI and the capabilities therein. So it's something that I wouldn't say keeps me up at night, but I wouldn't be surprised if one day there's an upstart business that has somehow solved AI. We think about chat GPT as, oh my God, this is so smart. But at the end of the day, it's just really smart machine learning. It is not artificial intelligence. Right. To me, chat GPT is a really quick, cool computer program. But at some point, there's going to be a real yeah. development in AI that changes an industry fundamentally and changes the power balance within an industry or even in a region with respect to certain countries and the capabilities that they may develop as a result of it. So that kind of worries me. But I do think it's important for companies and the C-suite of those businesses to think about how AI is both a risk and an opportunity in their business process. Well, you won't be surprised to know that the analyst teams are busy theorizing about this. It's early, so a lot of it is theory, but at least asking the question, what could happen? What could happen to my business if 
this mm-hmm. is adopted or this becomes useful for competition? What do they need to do? Can they benefit? Can they lose from it? It's being weighed up and we'll see how that falls out. It's interesting from everything you've said. It's like we came from this prior period of the last 10, 15 years where it seemed like interest rates were very low, geopolitical risk was fairly low, technology was changing, but you weren't maybe making these huge leaps. And it just seems like now there's so much uncertainty in so many different ways. Speaks a little bit to what our co-chairman Howard Marks wrote about in his sea change memo from late 2022, this idea that we're just perhaps entering this new era. It just makes it hard to predict the outcome when you have so many large factors moving in independent directions. They're just not correlated with one another. Technology, rates, geopolitical concerns, war. There's just so much that could change your assumptions so quickly and so materially that it becomes very hard to consistently invest and just close your eyes for a long period of time in the current market environment. It makes for active investors like Oaktree to have a pretty nice set of decisions to make over the next few years, but it's not for the faint of heart, I think. That also speaks to the fact you should never be too complacent, right? right? We look back on that period and at the time, I'm sure we didn't feel like we were in the good times, of course, right? but in right. retrospect, they were a lot better than they are today. But again, there are opportunities within the fallout of all of that. I guess as we look at the state of European credit, the state of credit overall, any final thoughts that you have to end with? Well, I think it's got to be a period of reflection on big events that have happened, a reshaking of the kaleidoscope and then reassessment of risk. But what it comes back to is that there are lots of very healthy companies in there. For us, it's a time where we're looking for those opportunities, potential return that we can get for risk companies where we believe that they will recover well, pay us our coupon, pay us our money back at maturity, and that potential return can be an outsized value for the risk presented. I agree completely with what Madeline was saying. I mean, if we look at our pipeline today, it's most attractive. It's been for the last 12 to 18 months. And you can just simply, without having to go into each different credit, look at the LTVs and yields and just their position in the market and just look at those three metrics and you'll see that it's been a sea change over the last 18 months versus the competition that we historically have seen in Europe, at least with the amounts of funds coming in. Now, there were about 900 funds in Europe this time last year. It'd be interesting to see how the market shakes out. But one thing is for certain, I think more and more funds are recognizing this need for real downside protection due diligence, real operational capability. And so there's more and more demand internally to grow their resources to bring in these type of capabilities that are also few and far between in Europe, by the way. And I think the only thing I would add is that coming full circle, there's a lot to point to in the near term or that has just occurred in the near term that would indicate that things are going to be just fine. But to Madeline's point about complacency, I think savvy investors should think about the medium term and the long term and think about whether there are fundamental shifts that have happened, sea changes, changes in your fundamental set of assumptions that call into question whether these short-term backward-looking indicators should be blindly followed and accepted. And the opportunity sets that we tend to identify as a firm usually grow with volatility like that. So as a firm, we look forward to that opportunity set And I think whether it's in the performing credit areas or the non-performing credit areas and real assets areas that we deploy capital into, I think we're excited about the potential return opportunity and the ability for us to manage that risk profile well. 
Well, I think that's a great point to end on. So thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Notes and disclaimers. This recording and the information contained herein are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities or related financial instruments. Responses to any inquiry that may involve the rendering of personalized investment advice or affecting or attempting to affect transactions and securities will not be made absent compliance with applicable laws or regulations, including broker-dealer, investment advisor, or applicable agent or representative registration requirements, or applicable exemptions or exclusions therefrom. This recording, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, posted, transmitted, distributed, disseminated, or disclosed in whole or in part to any other person in any way without the prior written consent of Oak Tree Capital Management LP, together with its affiliates, Oak Tree. By accepting this document, you agree that you will comply with these restrictions and acknowledge that your compliance is a material inducement to Oak Tree providing this document to you. This recording contains information and views as of the date indicated, and such information and views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed, that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performance is based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree believes that such information is accurate and that the sources from which it has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. Moreover, independent third-party sources cited in these materials are not making any representations or warranties regarding any information attributed to them and shall have no liability in connection with the use of such information in these materials. Copyright 2023, Oak Tree Capital Management, LP. Audiation.